Turn your Bibles this morning, Nehemiah chapter 2. Sorry. Not sorry. <clears throat> I was giving my kids a hard time this morning. Three teenagers. I, I like to use slang because it makes them cringe. So. <clears throat> so I was telling them this morning that they were being a little sus. I'm like, oh, Dad, stop. But hey, I figure uh, teenagers only have so many years to torture them and embarrass them. So <clears throat> pray for them. Nehemiah chapter 2. I want to make sure this Prezi comes up. Helps everybody out that's taking notes. I don't know. Huh? It's almost there. You can tell it's working. It was trying. Boom. Nehemiah chapter 2. <clears throat> the book of Nehemiah is broken down in a really interesting way. Um, first three chapters, uh, he's really telling his story. It's, they're taken from his journals. Probably an editor came back later, took Nehemiah's diary, uh, his journals, and, and just used them then to structure the book. And so it's first person through much of it. But the first three chapters, uh, Nehemiah is with doing what... Uh, all of our teachers try to teach us probably in middle school English, and that's how do you write. Um, so you set the, you give the context, the setting, you give the characters. Um, you have to have some kind of conflict. No conflict is boring, right? It, you know, nobody wants to read a story that starts, middle, and end is happily ever after. You, you got to have something. Well, good conflicts always involve enemies, bad guys. And so what you see Nehemiah do is Nehemiah introduces himself. He gives you the problem that has to be overcome. City's broken down, i.e. then the culture's broken down, the people are broken down. Uh, you got these major problems. Uh, you have the mission now Nehemiah is going to go on, and then you introduce all the bad guys. Um, and that's what he's doing at the end of chapter 2. Lord of the Rings, right? If you jump in Peter Jackson's film series, um, he introduces you. You get the hobbits at the start. You get, oh, it's this wonderful bucolic, like, you know, flute, pan flutes playing kind of place, and then you got this ring that's got to be taken care of, and then you got bad guys show up. And, and th this is just good storytelling. Um, and so this morning, we are introduced to these guys. Chapter 3, just foreshadowing because it's going to be a couple weeks. Um, next Sunday morning, we'll celebrate communion together. Uh, week after that, some of you remember Andrew Francine preached for us this past summer. He, he's going to be here with us uh, that Sunday. So it'll be a few weeks before we get there. So it's important you understand this context this morning. Chapter 3 talks about the building of the wall. And if you were to stop there, you'd think, oh, that's, it's all done. Uh, but the rest of the book kind of even backtracks a little bit to some of what went on when they're building. And, um, so that's, that's what's going on here. Let me give you the enemies so that you understand what the real battle's about. And so Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to pick up at verse 9. And that's what he's trying to introduce to us. Who are the bad guys of the story? Um, and you'll see their names here, Sambalot, Tobiah, and then there's this guy, Geshem. Uh, we'll talk more about that guy in a little bit. Uh, he's a very bit character. His name only shows up here in chapter 2 and one other time as a tattletale. The main guys, main bad guys, Sambalot and Tobiah. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9, if you follow along in your Bibles with me, he says this, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Quick reminder. Uh, Babylon is in control. The Medo-Persians have taken over Babylon, established their own king, 
And then in all these areas that have been conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire and the Babylonians, they set up these, they're called governors. Uh, they're puppet kings, right? So uh, the ones pulling the strings of the Medo-Persians, these guys are in their pocket and they send money back to them. You can think of Herod in the New Testament that way for the Romans. And so when he's talking about them, that's, that's who these guys are. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Now Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us, despised us, and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Years ago, uh, researchers were trying to discover what makes one student successful over another. Why, why is it some kids seem to get through the educational system and succeed, press on, uh, do well in life with whatever their endeavors are, and others just seem to fall by the wayside. Obviously, things like parental support, uh, a mom and dad or mom or dad in your corner pushing you, encouraging you, plays a role. Economic support, there's a clear distinction between uh, how well the impoverished tend to do academically and educationally as opposed to those with economic means and the wealthy. Quality curriculum. Clearly, uh, you get bad curriculum, you're, you're going to get bad education. And just, frankly, overall academic abilities. Just some people do better in a classroom academic setting than others. Some, I'm, I'm sure you have experienced in your life, when you were going through school, or if you're in school now, some people just test better than others. Uh, whether it's test anxiety, memory, recall, whatever. Just some people do better than others. And, and yet, when they looked at all of these things, and you zoom out lar large enough and get a bigger, clearer picture... They began to discover that while all those things can play a role, there was enough statistics that supported they're not the determining factor. At the end of the day, none of those things, parental support, economic ability, academic ability, um, intentionality, quality curriculum, those were not the key defining factor that tended to answer the question, why does one student do better than another? Uh, they discovered that it was a combination of passion and perseverance. The ability of a person to push through adversity 
is what resulted in children that would succeed and those who wouldn't. It can be boiled down to one word, grit. Do you have the grit to get through it? Um, and so when they look at students, and then they've begun to do these studies across the board, in almost every area of life, if a person has the mental toughness, the intestinal fortitude to push through adversity, they will tend to be more successful than others. Doctors know this. Um, when my wife was starting her cancer journey, I don't remember if it was a radiologist or the oncologist or the surgeon we were meeting with, but one of those doctors, uh, they were all wonderful. One of them was talking about people who tend to do well with cancer treatment and those who don't. And a strong determining factor were those that, in the way it was presented, was who have a positive outlook, who think that they can beat it. And they can have two people that have the same cancer, same prognosis, but the one who's convinced that, yeah, this will actually work and it can work, statistically, they tend to do better. And so part of the way it was presented is they were joking because whenever you start, I'm sure some of you experienced this, whenever you start a medical journey, there are always wonderful friends who have all kinds of suggestions for your treatments. You know, CBD oil is the answer. Vitamin C IV is the answer. Uh, holistic medicine, this new diet, this diet, do this, do that. Like everybody's got an answer. And I, and I, and I really think most of them, most of those folks are just well-meaning, well-intentioned, and they believe that. Great, fine. You know, um, you do you. And the doctors were kind of joking about it because I was asking about some of these things. And they were like, if you, that's what you want to do and you think that's going to help you, it's not going to hurt you. But a positive outlook will help you. So if you think that's going to help, there's a placebo effect. They're simply identifying the same kind of a thing, the grit, the perseverance, and the passion to get through something. The key defining attribute of guys who tend to make it into the Navy SEAL teams tends to be mental toughness. People who make it through medical school, law school, difficult academic endeavors, physical endeavors, it tends to be grit. There's other contributing factors, we know that, but there's grit. Can I just challenge you this morning that being on mission for God is hard? It's really hard. Staying on mission for God can feel brutally difficult. Daniel has grit when he won't stop praying just because they threaten him with death. Nope, I'm not going to stop doing what God's called me to do. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have grit when they refuse to bow down, even when they're faced with death. Jesus describes the need for spiritual grit when he says, don't put your hand to the plow and then take it off. What's he mean? If you're going to go after the job, then do the job and do it well. What job is Jesus talking about? It's the job of being on mission for God. He says, you have to love me more than father, mother, sister, brother. Living on mission for God and for his glory and his kingdom and not our own is hard. And Nehemiah, I'm convinced, has something to teach us this morning. And it's that it takes supernatural grit to get on and stay on mission for God. I think it takes something far beyond mental toughness. I think it takes the role and work of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine. And to be honest with you, to be very frank with you, you and I then living in submission to the power of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh, and saying, this is what God has called me to do, and that's what I'm going to do. There's not a promise that it'll be easy, and in fact, 
In fact, if you know and read your Bible, there's every anticipation it's going to be very, very hard. And so how do we, how do we learn from Nehemiah this morning then about spiritual, supernatural grit, spiritual grip, and how do we continue to press on the mission that God has for us? Take supernatural uh, grit to get on and stay on mission for God. So let's go back into our text and let's start unpacking here a little bit. Uh, first thing we've got is these bad guys. And as I said in the beginning, this whole part of the book is Nehemiah pushing the story forward. Uh, an absence of conflict or obstacles in the story just makes it boring. If there's no conflict, there's no fun. Uh, there's nothing to overcome. Uh, I don't know, something like, I, I just throw it out there. This is a made up stat on, the, on, the, on those moments, so you know, right? It feels like 50 to 80% of all Disney movies are orphans, right? So it's got to overcome, so here's your obstacle. Or um, you're, like Cinderella, uh, you know, she, she's put on by the stepmother. You got the wicked stepmothers and you got the, the, the kids that are rejected. And, and you got to have obstacles, you got to have conflict. And, and so you got to have something that draws you in. Uh, that makes it enjoyable. Um, you think of the old Batman series, and, and you got the Joker and the Riddler and the Penguin. Um, without these guys, Batman's nothing. And without Lex Luthor, Superman is nothing. As a matter of fact, Superman and Batman, without the bad guys, they become weird dudes with a lot of muscles dressed up in strange outfits rescuing cats and trees, right? You got to have something to overcome. If it's not a bad enough bad guy, who cares, right? Um, those of you that are into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, without a Thanos snapping his fingers, killing half of all life in the universe, who cares? And to prove how bad he is, you got to kill a couple of heroes along the way. They've got to be really, really bad. And so when Nehemiah starts his story, you expect there to be a bad guy. And the bad guy you expect is the king of Babylon. That's who you'd expect. Because the Babylonians came in, uh, they, they told Israel, you better submit to us. If you don't submit to us, we're going to wipe you out. Israel said, no, we won't submit to you. So they lay siege. It's so bad that they're actually given to cannibalism within the city walls of Jerusalem. In other words, we'd rather eat our own dead than to be under the Babylonians. When the Babylonians finally breach through the walls. They tear the walls down stone from stone. They burn the city gates. They slaughter people wholesale. They go into the temple area, completely destroy the temple, desecrate it, uh, kill uh, pigs and all kinds of other foul animals, slaughter the children of the city, and they march people back. And when they take them back, the king kills, the king of Babylon kills the king of Jerusalem's kids in front of him and then pokes his eyes out. So the last thing he ever saw was his own children dying. You expect that to be the bad guy. Medo-Persian or not, you're like, clearly that's going to be the bad guy. Well, he's not. All of a sudden, you start the story, and Artaxerxes is like, rebuild Jerusalem? Great idea. I'm on board. You're like, well, then who's going to be the bad guy? So it's these guys. We're introduced to two main bad guys, and then their sidekick. They're broken people. Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem are broken. They're incapable of moving away from their past to a rescued future. They are resistant to truth. They are embittered against God and his people. They're angry, resentful, and they're out to do anything and everything in their power to stop Nehemiah from being and staying on mission. The rest of Nehemiah is going to give us more insight into these guys. 
They're going to use a variety of methods. You could actually argue that the whole book of Nehemiah could be boiled down to how does God fulfill his promises through people on mission in the presence of fierce enemies. Now, if you think about that, what I just described was the church. How in the world is God going to fulfill his promises through broken people staying on mission for God in the face of terrible enemies? So Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail. He's talking about the church moving forward. And I mean large church, universal church, but yeah, there's also local church. Presenting the gospel, spreading the truth, loving their neighbor. How in the world is a church ever going to fulfill the one another's of scripture? I'm going to love you more than I love myself. I'm going to honor you more than myself. I'm going to prefer you over myself. I'm going to give up my liberties for you. That gets myself, that's hard mission that God has us on. We're going to train one another to do the work of the ministry. We're going to speak the truth in one another's lives. We're going to confront one another, Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to do all these things as a church, and yet we're all very, very broken people. How in the world could that happen? And, and so that's a huge question, and all of it happens in the face of terrible opposition from within and from without. The book of Nehemiah is a wonderful, glorious picture of how God does, fulfills his mission Fulfills his promises through very broken people staying on mission in the face of terrible enemies. That's the question. How's it going to happen? The rest of Nehemiah is going to give us wonderful insights into how the enemies of God come against those that are on mission for God. But there's a few in this text that we can see. First of all, they will mock the people of God. Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem mock. Nehemiah starts off right away by telling us these guys are mad. When he starts this section, verse 10, so when Sambalot the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. <laughs> There's an old uh, TV show where the husband and wife are having a conversation, and one of the kids does something bad. And the wife, or the husband asked the wife, Are you mad? And she said, No, dogs get mad. I'm angry. As the show progresses, the kid keeps messing up more and more and more. You get to the end of the show, and, you look, and the husband looks at the wife and goes, you're still angry? She goes, no, now I'm mad. Uh, this is euphemistic for these guys are mad. Greatly displeased is an understatement. These guys are filled with resentment and rage. And Nehemiah tells us that's their position. If you come down towards the end of the chapter Nehemiah starts making statements that start to reveal one of the methods that God's enemies use. And it's verse 17, when, he, when Nehemiah is, after he's taken his journey around the city, and he's talking to these officials and leaders in Israel, he says, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. This derision is the mockery of the people that live around them, of people like Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And, and there's so many ways that they could have mocked, that they will mock later in the book. There's so many kind of things that they would say. And we see different moments of mockery throughout the, throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, you can think of when David goes down to fight Goliath. Goliath is mocking God and his people. How powerful can your God be if this is what he does? The Philistines um, are this constant... Uh, sword for the Israelites to clash against to show the power of God. And in several seasons, because of their idolatry, the Jews lose. 
And at one point, the Philistines actually captured the Ark of the Covenant, which was the centerpiece of their worship. And they take it back, and God is like, you know what? No way. You're not mocking me. So he causes this massive idol to fall down. It breaks off its head and its hands. And it's just a statement, a declaration on what idols really are. They may look powerful, but they lack any eyes to see, ears to, ears to hear, minds to think, and they have no hands. They can't do anything. And God ostensibly does that from a box, the Ark of the Covenant. And so this, there's this constant theme in the Bible of mocking God. And so when they're looking at the people, they're mocking them and they're holding the derision. They're making fun of them. This is all you've got? What kind of God do you serve that this is the way he is? Look at the people that you are. God is so mad at you. You guys are nobodies. Now remember, when the Babylonians captured Jerusalem, they hauled away all the, the princes and the royalty. Then they hauled away all the, the leaders and the merchants, and they hauled away anybody else of value. The only people they left back in Jerusalem were the uneducated, dispossessed, poor, or sick. Now some people have come back under Zerubbabel, and some other people came back under Ezra, but largely the people that have been living there are going to be a people of a very insecure mindset. Have you ever come across somebody in your life and maybe you are this person, who's been under such fierce spiritual attack that they feel like they're just hanging on by their fingernails. And they feel like they're a nobody. They're so discouraged. They're so broken down and beaten down. They don't know how they're going to take the next step. They feel insecure. I can't live up to what God wants me to do. And so to have someone come into their life, that'd be like somebody coming into life and they'd be like, you know what? Yeah, I don't know how you're hanging on. Yeah, you know what? You're right. God probably is really mad at you and disappointed in you. You're right to feel that terrible. You are a horrible person. That's helpful. One of the ways that Satan works through his people, through his enemies, is to say in accusing ways to you the things you already fight believing about you. And it's a tool that they use. And so you can actually see some of their mockery in verse 18, as Nehemiah presses forward, excuse me, as it goes on, verse 19. But, and I told them, verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And so what does Nehemiah respond with? He tries to push back with truth. He tries to demonstrate the things he's seen God do. God's been faithful in the past. He's being faithful now. He'll be faithful in the future. That's, that's really what he's saying. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. In other words, we don't need to be afraid of these people around us. We can, the king, the real king is working through this king to help us rebuild. And then they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalot the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. The enemies of God will mock the people of God. Words are powerful in our lives. <clears throat> this is hard to quantify, and this is difficult to say without sounding like I'm minimizing. So I want to walk carefully here. But in studies that they have done about abuse, if you're going to categorize them, sexual, physical, mental slash emotional. They all have far-reaching, profound effects. All of them. I'm not minimizing any of them. But I will tell you, as they've done research, 
the ones that change the way your physical brain, CAT scans, your physical brain moves forward. In other words, it alters you on a physical, neurological level is mental and emotional abuse. It stays with you in a way that's unbelievable. That is not minimizing physical sexual abuse. I'm not at all. And I'm not saying it doesn't change you, it doesn't affect I only say that with this. There is a power in the words that are said to us. Uh, I told you the story before about my elementary school principal. I was walking home from school one day and this little boy, um, I think I was maybe sixth grade. He was maybe fifth grade, something. And he started saying all these things to me about my mom. He didn't even know my mom. But you can imagine the things he was saying about my mom. And I listened to it and listened to it and listened to it. And I just couldn't take it anymore. So I turned around and I socked him. <laughs> this is not counseling what you should do. I'm just saying what I did do. And so I clocked this kid. You can tell, you know, I'm 48. Still very low guilt for this. So he runs back to the school. I go home. I didn't think any more of it. Next day, I get called into the principal's office. Ironically enough, her name was Miss Wise. I get called in her principal's office. She sits me down and asks me what happened because he ran back to school and told on me. Shows up with a bloody nose, and here I am in the principal's office. Why'd you do what you did? So I told her he said things about my mom. What do you say about your mom? I'm not allowed to say those words. You can say that here. I need you to know. So I told him, you know, shamefacedly, blushing, told her the language this kid used. And she said, well, there's a very important lesson for you to learn, Stephen. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. She's an idiot. <laughs> because I'm telling you, words hurt. They change you. Proverbs says that they're like arrows. You shoot arrows from a long distance. Social media shrunk our world. But you can have people a long way away hurting you deeply. Just shooting. What hits, hits. The Bible, Proverbs also says they're like javelin throws. That's a little closer. Heavy artillery of, the, of their day. You can't, you can't throw a javelin as far as you can shoot an arrow. So it's a little closer. And then the Bible also describes them as sword thrusts. You know, if you're going to hit somebody with a sword, you've got to get up real close and personal. And every one of those are deadly. James says that it's like a fire. A little spark that can burn a whole forest down. Or like a tiny rudder on a ship that can control the whole ship. There's a power in our tongues and our words and the enemy knows it. So when he comes to uh, <clears throat> Eve in the garden, what does he use? He uses his words. Has God really said that? Is that really what's going to happen? Always be aware if you're going to be on mission for God and stay on mission for God, somebody at some point is going to start using their words to mock you, discourage you, and distract you. They will. I guarantee it. This is a method of Satan that's all over the Bible, and this is exactly what they're doing. There's a personal and painful moment to this. They're lasting in their damage, and they're exponentially harmful. They will use this method time after time after time in this book. Second, they try to sway the people from the work. Nehemiah sees the impact that they've had prior to his arrival. He had heard the story that the city walls are still broken down, the gates are still burned. Even though Zerubbabel had gone back, even though Ezra had gone back, these guys have not gotten back to that work. 
these, these surrounding enemies. And this happened before Sambalot and Tobiah Geshem ever showed up. The generation before used the same tactics, but that's exactly what these guys are doing. And so when they ask the questions at the bottom, they say, what's this thing that you're doing? It's funny they don't even mention the walls because they know this is bigger than rebuilding the city walls and the gates. But what are you doing? And are you rebelling against the king? It's a little bit like we've already played this record once. You're going to play it again? They don't want anybody to be busy about the work of God. Later, they're going to employ... This, work, this method, again, by mocking the work of the people. Uh, one of the things I think it's Tobiah will say later is, look at this wall they've built. If a fox ran across it, it would fall to the ground. <laughs> it's a little bit like Job's friends. You remember those guys? At one point, they said Job's life is like a, a hut that the beating wings of a moth would blow it down. That's what they're saying. You guys don't even... You don't even build well. You're building city walls. My kid, this is like Lincoln Logs. My kid can make better out of, out of cardboard. What are you doing? They will mock and deride them, and they will try anything in their power to get other people off of mission. You are doing a bad job. You're not qualified to do this. Who do you think you are that you're doing this? Haven't you experienced that when you've tried to be on mission for what God would want you to do? What makes you think that you're the one that should be doing this ministry? What makes you think that you're the one that should be sharing the gospel with, with me? What makes you, that's what you said to them? Like, what? Didn't you, didn't you think of this verse and that verse and the other verse? That's the decisions you guys made? That's what you're trying, what? You're trying to do this ministry? <sighs> okay. They will try anything in their power to sway people off from the work of God. They'll build a coalition of opposition. Nehemiah highlights Sambalat and Tobiah. We also have Geshem here. You can think of them as bullies with their cronies. They've, they've always got to have an audience. Have you ever noticed that about bullies? They've always got to play to an audience. You know why? Because they're a bunch of insecure people. And they're going to get their sense of security over dominating someone else, but they need a cheerleading squad around them all the time. They make a joke. Isn't that right? Ha, ha, ha. That's who these guys are. And so while they're named and they're the ringleaders, they're not the only ones who try to oppose the work of Nehemiah or the Jews in Jerusalem throughout the rest of the book. But they've always tried to get somebody on their side. They need a following and they love to get people on their side. It's a power play more suited for preschool classrooms and middle school playgrounds. They're never content in their opposition. They need other people to join them. They operate on a win-at-all-cost method. And it comes up again and again and again and again. And I'll tell you this, the ones that Satan delights the most in building a coalition is people you thought were your friends. And so that's why it's Judas that betrays him with a kiss. I mean, let's think about it. Did he really need Judas the high priest and everybody's already wound up. It really wouldn't have been taken rocket science to figure out where Jesus is at. They could have followed him. There's an there's a evil delight in that moment. It's one of the ways <coughs> the enemy works. And then fourthly, they oppose God's mission, but they make it about Nehemiah. This is one of the craftiest tactics that the enemy will use. 
That's why Jesus says later in the gospel, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Let's take out the leader. This is the method of diatrophies against the apostles. This is the method of the Corinthians against Paul. This is the method of Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem against Nehemiah. This is the method that the other leaders use in Babylon when Daniel is praying before God and and they're like, how can we get rid of him? And they don't mean get him out of his position. It's how can we kill him without actually murdering him? That's what will solve our problem. This is what they're, they're doing when they accuse Nehemiah of defying the king. They say he is rebelling against the king. Now, here's what's fascinating about this particular method of the enemy and, and particularly devious. They actually accuse Daniel or excuse Nehemiah of what they're doing. Nehemiah has letters from the king authorizing this work. They are opposing this work. So, so they are defying the king, but accusing Nehemiah of defying the king. Have you ever had some? It's gaslighting 101. So when somebody accuses you of what they are actually doing to you, they lie about you by saying you're a liar. They attempt to control and manipulate you while accusing you of being a controlling manipulator. They gossip about you while trying to accuse you of being a gossip. This is the way the enemy works. What they're opposed to is you being on mission for what God wants you to do, but, but how do they go against, that would, be, that would look terrible to go against God's mission. So let me try to make this about you. You're the problem. So can I just remind you, in the face of this kind of opposition, it takes supernatural grit to get on and stay on mission for God. And if you're sitting there and you might be thinking, this sounds terrible and I really don't want it. I don't want to be mocked. I don't want to try to lead or influence people that that I have to fight against all the time. I don't want to have to deal with a whole group of enemies. One is enough. I don't, you know, I thought this would be a one-on-one thing. I don't need to be me versus the mob. And I don't want my name and character to be destroyed while I'm trying to do is serve God. And, and I get it. And can I just tell you, I'm going to give you, here is one way you can avoid all this. So if you're taking notes, you, this is important. Here's the pathway to avoid all of this. Are you ready? Stop serving God. You serve God, this will happen. I guarantee it, 100%, the whole Bible says so. You want to not be mocked, you want to not have your name and reputation questioned, you want to not be opposed by a group of people, you want to not have people try to undercut you all the time, don't serve God. You serve Jesus, this will happen. You will never be wise enough, smart enough, or perfect enough to avoid it. And if you think that, if you think that, all of this happens to Jesus. <laughs> I mean, was, everything Jesus did was the wisest possible way of doing it, right? Everything Jesus did was the most loving way of doing it, right? Everything Jesus did was the most gracious, miraculous, powerful way to do it. And he experienced all these things. It's a lie to think that Nehemiah is getting mocked and opposed and destroyed 
because of Nehemiah. He's not. He's experiencing all this because he is committed to faithfully pursue the mission God has given him. And so I, I, I would hope that we would all agree, if you know and love Jesus, then that's not an option, <laughs> right? Okay, table that one. He made me write it down. <laughs> so then how in the world do I press forward? Where can this grit come from? Well, let's press forward a little bit more to understand these guys. Why are they this way? I've just told you what they do, but why are they the way they are? And it's a scary level of hatred. Now, when you come to the Bible, if you, were, if you and I were coming to the Bible completely unaware, if we had never opened the Bible, never read the Bible, never spent a day in church, never had Sunday school, children's church, never had a grandma, grandpa that, that knew Jesus or knew the Bible, a parent, nothing, and all you did was start at Genesis chapter 1, can I just tell you, it's a scary story. It actually is. You start off and everything's completely black, void, there's nothing, and then God says, let there be light, and there's light, and he creates, and you're like, this is amazing. And so there's the fear and the terror of the absolute void of darkness and the nothingness that existed in our temporal, physical world. Nothing existed except for God and eternity past, and then suddenly we have things, and it's kind of a scary moment, but your, your hopes start getting up because Genesis 1, Genesis 2 is pretty cool. You know, with a garden, you got animals running around. Uh, you got a, you got a, a man and a woman running around. You got a guy, and he's lonely. And so he's like, you know what? Here's a woman, and he's like, this is amazing. This is great. And God doesn't say things are good till He has a community going on. Then then He says, this is good, and it's glorious, and eat of this fruit and enjoy this, and and you're hanging out with animals, you're naming animals, and everything's wonderful. Then Genesis three shows up. We're only two chapters in, and suddenly we got an animal getting its throat slit, skin to cover people that have now done evil things. You're like, oh, I mean, this story, this story took a left turn in a hurry, folks. And then you're like, okay, but now there's redemption, there's rescue, there's going to be the serpent-crushing child. This is amazing. And then a brother murders his brother in a field. Like, man, I, this, is, this is getting dark. And by chapter 6... We're six chapters in, six chapters in into the first book of 66 books, six chapters in, God kills everybody but eight people. I mean, that feels like you need to just do a rewrite. It's a scary story. It feels like it just goes from good to bad to terrible. Can I just tell you, Satan has never stopped his anti-mission. Uh, we, we talk about the anti-Christ in the end times. Satan is on anti-mission. God's mission is to broke, proclaim and broadcast his glory, his love, his majesty, his righteousness, his power, his justice. He wants the world and the universe to know it and to show it. And Satan is on mission to destroy it. And he's been on mission since, since the garden and he's never stopped. And now all he's doing is using these guys. And there is a scary level of hatred and vitriol from Satan. And it's expressed in these guys. Well, these guys don't just show up with no past. Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem all have a past. Now, Geshem's the easy one. He's the crony. He's the hanger-on. So I'm going to check his box and move him off. Like I said at the start, he shows up here at the end of the chapter, chapter 2, and then later in the book, one time when he tries to rat out Nehemiah and get him in trouble for something. So Geshem is a bit part. Geshem is the crony. Geshem, I don't even remember uh, Biff from Back to the Future. I don't remember his crony's names. I don't remember. 
Like they're bit parts. That's who Geshem is. He's a bit part. He's an Arab. Arabs live to the south is, is what they're communicating. So you got Israel. You got him to the south. And what's going on is if the walls of Jerusalem get rebuilt, they don't need the south anymore. As long as the walls are broken down, if they needed to run from Babylon, you know where they ran? To the south. If they needed to trade, where did they trade? To the south. If they needed to pay off protection money, who'd they pay? The south. And so he doesn't want this to happen because it's going to cut him economically. That's what he's doing. That's his history. And he probably still feels some way about the whole uh, leave out of Egypt, take all your gold with us thing. And, and it's like, we, we hate these people. They were our slaves, and now look who they are. This is kind of like Jim Crow South. They were our slaves, now they're supposed to be our equals? Oh, we'll find another way to control them. It's that kind of just lingering hatred. You're like, really? And that's who Geshem is. But Sambalot and Tobiah, though, these guys are a whole nother ball game. And so to tell you that story, I actually have to go back to Abraham and Lot. Abraham travels. He's got Lot, his nephew, because he didn't have any kids at the time. And there comes this moment where Lot is like, oh, you know where I'm going to go live? I'm going to go live in this, this incredibly fertile, verdant valley. And there's these two wonderful cities that I'll be able to trade with, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're just like, spoiler alert, we know how this is going to turn out. So Lot lives, Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, I'm going to kill them all. I mean, it's legitimately some hellfire and brimstone stuff, right? Hellfire, brimstone. (laughs) Lot goes running away. He's got his wife and his two daughters. He flees away from the cities. His wife looks back, still wishing they could live in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God turns her into a pillar of salt because her heart is is still being pulled back to idolatry. So now you have Lot and his two sons. Now, like the Bible just puts it out there. The next part is like an M-rated Netflix show. They go to stay in a cave. Not Lot's daughters are worried they won't have any heirs. They get dad drunk and they sleep with him. The Bible does not shy away from crazy things. They both get pregnant. One of them names her son Moab. The other one names her son Ben Ammon. These become the Moabites and the Ammonites. The Moabites and the Ammonites are the enemies of Israel until they are eventually wiped out. Long after even some of the events that we're working our way through. The the Moabites live to the north of Israel. And the Ammonites lived to the right, as we would look at a map. And over the years, they afflict Israel, they attack Israel, they try to befriend Israel, then they backstab Israel. And there's this whole long history It's so much so that in Deuteronomy 23, God makes this direct declaration. No Moabite and no Ammonite can be a part of my people. They can't be a part of the community. And you're a little bit like, wow. And he says to the 10th generation, none of them are in. And that is like a mark on you. I mean, you're not, that's that's like the guy that gets out of prison. And every time he tries to go get a job, uh, oh, you're on parole? Uh, We're not going to hire you then. Like these guys are like, this is supposed to be the one true God and we can't be a part. Well, then we hate you. The Moabites and the Ammonites are the ones that introduced the idolatry of Molech, Chemosh, into the worship practice of Israel. These are the idols that they would have these massive uh, feasts and parties. Uh, The best way I could describe it in veiled terms is a Bacchus feast that would then result in all of these unwanted pregnancies. So then they advance the idolatry and then we kill those babies by burning them alive when they're born. They introduced this to Israel, Moabites and Ammonites. 
Well, Sambalot, Nehemiah says he's what? He's a Horonite. That's an interesting thing. It's a city. It, it was a capital city of Moab. Moab as a nation doesn't exist at this point. It is his way of saying Sambalot's a Moabite. And he flat out tells you Tobiah is an Ammonite. There is a timeline of hatred for these guys that goes way back. On top of this, Sambalot is living north of Israel, and so he is a Samaritan. And so, and so the Samaritans, the, what had happened was you had this mixed uh, kind of intermarriage in the northern Israel between Jews, Jews and the Moabites, and then the Ammonites came in, and they just sprinkled even more into it. They just mixed, they forced them to marry people. And so then you had this group of people that, it's like, where do I come from? Who am I? What's my genealogical record? And, and so they want to be Jews, but they don't want to leave the gods of the Moabites. And so you have, they're Samaritans. Well, when the first group of people come back, Zerubbabel from Babylon, and they're like, we're going to rebuild the temple. The Samaritans come and they say, we want to help you rebuild. And Zerubbabel's like, no way, Jose. You're not helping us build this because you're a bunch of intermarried people. Like, oh, Really? Well, then you know what? God doesn't even actually want us to worship in Jerusalem. And they come up with this whole plan that they are now going to, met, going to worship at Mount Gerizim, just a few miles, about 10 to 15 miles north of Jerusalem. They actually, um, it's interesting, historically, guess what? They started to build a temple there, on their own temple on Mount Gerizim. You know when they started? Nehemiah time. Because they weren't being permitted to come and worship in Jerusalem. They're married about it. On top of that, when Ezra had come back, any of the Jews living in Jerusalem that had intermarried with the Moabites, the Ammonites, or the Samaritans, he made them divorce and send their wives and their kids back. So, I mean, these guys hate the Jews. They hate them for economic reasons, for historical reasons. They, they hate them because they, they act like they're, they're better than them in their minds. This extends, this split extends all the way to Jesus' day where there's comments made that they're a Samaritan. I'm a Jew. Do the Jews have anything to do with Samaritans? No, they don't. These people live in this uneasy separation, the same land. They go to the same places, but they don't like each other. They hate each other. They don't trust each other. They despise one another. Now, this hatred looks ethnic for sure. It just does. The problem is there's a greater complexity to it because it was never ethnic for God. It wasn't. It's not that God loves Jewish people because they are genetically Jewish more than he loves Gentiles. That's not true. It's not that he loves white people more than brown people or yellow people more than white people. It's never been about that. It's actually never been ethnic for God at all. The, the, the greatest proof I can give to you that is when you get to heaven, what language will we speak? Well, English, of course. <laughs> okay. Um, what will we look like? Well, I think it's fascinating <clears throat> that heaven, and the church is intended to be a picture of this. Heaven, God says, has people of every tribe, tongue, in nation. Man, when I was growing up, we still had a little black and white TV. Color is so much better. 
God paints in color. You'll hear all kinds of languages in heaven. You'll see all kinds of people, and you will rejoice and delight because God delights in expressing his glory through the majestic use of technicolor on this planet. It's never been about race for God that way. It was about idolatry. So the greatest proof point I could give you is heaven. But can we even go to the Old Testament? Sure. At one point, God sends a prophet all the way to Assyria, the hated enemies of Israel, to preach in Nineveh. And what's God do? Saves the whole city. But just another point, there is this Moabite. You've heard of her. Her name is Ruth. And she is in the line of Jesus. And then I'll prove it to you another way. When you get to the Gospels, when Jesus was in a moment, he was like, how do I explain to religious people what real love looks like? Who does he make the hero of the story in an image of himself? A good Samaritan. He didn't spend five minutes with Rome's leader, the emperor. Spent very little time with the high priest, but he spent a whole afternoon with a Samaritan woman who had been rejected by everyone else to show his mercy and his grace and his glory. This has never been about race or ethnicity. The reason these prescriptions were against the Moabites and the Ammonites was because they had massive feasts and they'd sacrifice their children and they would not turn from their idolatry to serve the one true God. That's what's going on here. But these guys make it about ethnicity and race. God doesn't. And so their hatred runs very deep. And so um, how then, this is why they hate. We've seen what they do. How do they work then? Like it would seem like it would be obvious then that no one should listen to them. But there is a meanness here that's masked. If you're watching a scary movie, there's always this terrifying moment when the monster is revealed. I remember that moment in the old Jaw movies when it's no longer the tail but the jaw, this animatronic shark rears its ugly head. I, I got to tell you something. You watch Jaws. When I was a kid, I was like, I'm not swimming in the ocean. <laughs> it's terrifying. A good scary movie, and I'm not a big scary movie fan, but a good scary movie is there's a moment when the monster's revealed. The mask is taken off. Well, Satan rarely operates in any kind of way that he looks like some terrifying monster. The Bible actually tells us he likes to masquerade as an angel, angel of light. He masks himself. He hides himself. He uses the form of a serpent that somehow in Genesis is like the most beautiful animal. And he speaks kind words to Eve to, in order to convince her. You see, if we could see the monster for what it is, we would never follow or listen to it. And so these guys masquerade. They hide who they really are. How do they cloak who they really are? The cloak is this. They claim to follow the same God. Now, uh, they don't really follow God, but that's what they claim. Sambalat's son-in-law, get this now, his son-in-law is the grandson of the high priest. How would you like to be Nehemiah working with a high priest that your fiercest enemy is related to the religious leader? There's a complexity there. Tobiah is also somehow related. Later on, Nehemiah goes on a business trip, and they, while Nehemiah's away, they build a special room for Tobiah to live in the temple. Like, these guys are so connected, they're interwoven. On top of that, Sembalot names each of his children with names that begin with Yahoo, which was a variant of Jehovah. It was a way of claiming we follow 
God. The problem is at their core, they are idolaters. They want to worship God, but they want to worship God on their terms, in their way, where they want to, when they want to, and alongside their own gods. It's a whole pattern in the Bible. When Cain gets exposed as a fake, who does he, what's he do? He kills his brother, the real deal. When the Pharisees are exposed as fakes, what do they do? They say, let's kill Jesus. This is a method as old as time. When the real shows up, the fakes are exposed. You better know, if you're going to follow God, if you're living and speaking in truth, liars, hypocrites, and idolaters are going to get ticked at you. They will either repent or they'll hate you. Sometimes people get shocked by people by, by this person. Why is this person mad? Why is this person so angry? They get shocked when the mask gets taken off. I like what the old preacher said. You throw a rock into a pack of dogs, and the one that yelps is the one that got hit. You speak truth. The one who yelps is the one who got hit with it. You serve God long enough, you be on mission, you're going to make somebody mad, and I guarantee you, you'll be shocked sometimes who it is. I never thought that they would. Don't be ashamed of that moment. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. The, the disciples sat around when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, and their answer was, is it I? None of them were like, yeah, I bet that's Judas. It is shocking because Satan is crafty. When Sambalot and Tobiah are exposed, they get enraged. You can't come and help with the building. You can't. All the way back in Ezra's day and Zerubbabel's day, you can't help. And it's really because you haven't given up your idolatry. And that, How dare you tell me I can't? How dare you tell me? How dare, how dare you tell me God wouldn't want me to do this? Like... Ephesians chapter 4 says that you shouldn't do this. Well, who are you to judge me? Well, Hebrews 3 says I should confront you lest you be hardened in the deceptiveness of your sin. You just think you're better than me. Well, no, Galatians 5 says if you see a brother or sister overtaking a fault, you who are spiritual should seek to restore such a one lest you commit the same, but do it humbly. Lest you, like, I don't think I'm better than you. I don't. But what you're doing is sinful. You're nothing but a Pharisee. Well, actually, the Pharisees had a terrible track record of confronting in love, and that's what I'm trying to do here in this moment. So now let me blow up Instagram, Facebook, social media, and burn the phone line, destroying your name and reputation. Nothing's changed, has it? It's the same thing today. Nehemiah. Jesus, Paul, all the apostles, and you. And you. You ever lovingly confronted a family member, and then you find out six months later the family member is just destroying your name and reputation? You ever tried to talk to a neighbor about the gospel, and then suddenly nobody in the neighborhood seems to want to look at you in the eye anymore? And you're like, what is going on? And then you find out they were like, oh, so-and-so is heavy-handed. You ever tried to be kind and loving and share truth at work and then all of a sudden? You thought you were going in love and compassion to speak truth to someone and then they hate you? So where, where do we go? What do we do? How do we function? Well, Nehemiah gives us a couple methods here that I think are really helpful, right? Even at the start of the book, we're going to unpack more of these as we go along. But how do we have grit on the battlefield? How do we stay after it? 
I'm going to give you a couple things from Nehemiah. Number one, wisdom is the strategy. What should be your strategy? Wisdom. And we see Nehemiah do this. And at the start, he says he got letters from the king. He got letters from the king because previously what they had done, when Ezra was there and Zerubbabel was there, they sent the, the enemies sent letters to the king of Babylon saying, did you know this is what they're doing? And the king of Babylon at the time said, stop the work. So Nehemiah was like, We're, I'm wiser than that, right? <laughs> I'm going to get the letter from the king at the get-go. And so there's a strategy. Um, there was an army escort. Later on, Sambalot and Tobiah will actually try to assemble armed people to stop them. And previously, they'd stopped them by violent assault to keep them from rebuilding the walls. So with Nehemiah, he's like, I'll take an army escort. Yeah, he's trying to function wisely. He has this nighttime ride. Now, there's a lot there in verses 11 through 16 that I just will give it to you very briefly. It basically, he's at night and he rides around the whole city. There's one part where he can't get his donkey pass because the, the houses were built on a terrace level. And when the walls broke down, they made all the houses crumble. So he had to get off of his donkey. It's at night. Listen, if your house, if your house got hit by a tornado, Right, and the roof is torn off, and you got to get contractors to come look at your house. And so you, con you the insurance company says, get me three estimates. So you contract three contractors. You set it up. It's a Friday. Uh, the first contractor comes at noon, looks at the roof. He says, I'll get back with you the price. The next contractor shows up at one in the afternoon, looks at the roof, says, I'll give you my price. The third guy never shows up on time. But on Monday, you get a quote from the third contractor, and you're like, dude, I never saw you. He goes, oh, that's okay. I came at three in the morning and took a look at, look at it. Are you going with contractor three? If you are, let's have a little combo afterwards. This is not an accurate reflection of a construction survey. Nehemiah is getting a scope of the work. That's what he's doing here. He rides around the whole city and, 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 and looks at all of it, not like, oh, this is exactly how all this is going to work but just to get a sense of what has happened and, and, a, and a, a, an expression of his heart. He wants to put his eyes on what his heart's been praying about. And I love that about Nehemiah. And so all these gates are just simple different entrances. We'll talk more about those in the weeks to come. But that's a strategy. It's a strategy because he knows he's got people that are going to be easily discouraged, questioning what he's doing. And frankly, sometimes when you're on mission for God, you've got to have moments where it's just you and God the Father and not have to sit and listen to everybody else's voice about what they think you ought to be doing. What's God want me to do? Okay, that's what I'm going to do. So that I'm prepared then to deal with it. So there's a wisdom in his strategy. Wisdom is the key to dealing with enemies to God's mission. Sometimes, now this is going to be profoundly unhelpful, some of you will think. Because what you really want me to do at this point is to give you like three ways of wisdom. But I'm going to tell you wisdom is hard. Because sometimes you rebuke fools and sometimes you don't. Proverbs 9, 7 and 26, 4 through 5. Sometimes you don't preach. Matthew 7, 6. Don't cut through your pearls before swine. Knock the sand off your shoes and move on. And sometimes you do. Matthew 5 through 7, he's preaching to people who don't even want to hear it. You always seek to be wise, but harmless. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And you're like, man, Steve, I don't know that that's helpful. Because if you can't give me three steps and all I need to do is have wisdom, my only recourse would be asking wise people, safety and multitude of counselors, or running to his word a lot. And could it be that you're in a season of opposition because God wants you to spend more time running to him? I think so. And I think that's actually kind of God. Wisdom is the strategy. Secondarily, God's glory is the goal. 
This is what enables Nehemiah to not be distracted by the personalized attacks and false accusations. He refuses to get drawn into their schemes. Later in the book, I love it. There's a one point, Sambalat and Tobiah are like, you know what, Nehemiah, you need to come out here and meet with us so we can have a conversation. He... Nehemiah just ignores them. Like, Nehemiah, we said we want to talk to you. And Nehemiah essentially says this, I don't have time for your nonsense. I'm on mission. And nothing makes them angrier than that. I love it. A guy told me a long time ago, Steve, if you ever get an anonymous complaint letter, file it. I was like, file it? He goes, yeah, in the trash. Don't waste your time. Nehemiah will actually show us that. Why? Because his goal is not to please anybody but God. Let me remind you that our fight is not with flesh and blood. And the one who thinks that they can, uh, that they can somehow distract us. Listen, our fight is, is cosmic. It's supernatural. Uh, Nehemiah's fight looks like Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, but it's not. It's satanic in nature. When someone is trying to distract you, discourage you, attack you, assault you from being on mission from God, they're, they're actually not your enemy. It's the force compelling them. And as we learn from Job, sometimes it can even be well-meaning, well-intentioned people who think they're speaking truth, but they're actually talking lies. God's glory is the goal. Thirdly, there's one voice to hear. It's easy to spend our time and energy worrying over those that hate us, oppose us, and try to destroy the work we're doing for God. Their voice sounds so loud in our ears. My son was playing lacrosse last spring. Lacrosse is a physical game. You, you get to run around, and they give you a stick to hit people with. It's so much fun to watch. So my son's running around with a stick, and he's hitting people. It also means you get hit. And we were playing against this team, and they're a bunch of whiny crybabies who were bending the rules and mad about it and losing. And my son went up for a face-off. And so you go to the face-off, and it's very much like a hockey face-off. We're here. There's going to be a lot of shoving, hitting each other, wrestling away. And, and I just, I love these moments because my son's good at it. And he put a hit on somebody. And, and I hear all these other parents are yelling and cheering for the other kid. And I made a decision in that moment. There was one voice my son was going to hear. And it was going to be mine. And, and, and my kid, I gave him a nickname when he was little. I called him Rufus. I don't know why. It's not his name. It's Rufus. But it's a love, affectionate nickname, right? Rufus. And I am screaming, Rufus! And he put a hit on that kid. It was a beautiful thing to behold. Like I, the kid probably still doesn't walk straight. But I wanted my son, hear me now, I wanted my son to hear a voice of love that would drown out every voice of criticism. Can you, in these moments, hear the voice of God? That will give you grit. And this is what God says. When Jesus was being mocked, he thought very little. That's what it means in Hebrews, that he despised it. He thought very little. As they stripped him naked and hung him to a cross, he thought very little of their mockery. Why? Because he was listening for one voice and one voice only. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. 
And so he thought little of it. It's not that he wasn't arrogant. He did not have ears to hear the lies of the enemy. Hear the voice of God when he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's almost like what God is saying is that when someone here is trying to get you off mission and they're lying about you and gossiping about you and trying to destroy you and railing against you, it's almost like God in heaven is like, oh, oh, that's what you say about my child? Great is the reward. Give him more rewards. Give her more promise and praise. They will not treat my child this way. Hear my voice, child, and have grit. Listen for the voice of God when he says this. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And have grit. Listen to the voice of God when he says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Hear that voice. And brothers and sisters, have some grit about being on mission for God.